You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. We are continuing through our Advent sermon series uh, this morning. Uh, I chose four psalms, and each one embodies a core theme of Advent. So two weeks ago, if you remember, we looked at Psalm 33 uh, to see how our hope should be in the Lord's help. Uh, Last week, Josh was here with you, uh, and he preached from Psalm 4 on the foundations of peace. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 16 uh, to discover David's and subsequently your journey towards joy. And as we think about that topic of joy uh, as it relates to this psalm, um, I want to start by taking a moment to reflect on some church history. Uh, If if you're not very familiar with church history, um, one of the, the greatest triumphs of the early church was the legalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Uh, There was a pagan emperor named Constantine, uh, and he converted to Christianity, and he legalized Christianity shortly after his conversion uh, in 313. Uh, And in the wake of his coming to Christ and his conversion, uh, he gathered together all of the early church leaders from all across the empire to get together and formally recognize and write down uh, some of the the basic doctrines of Christianity in the form of a creed. Uh, And that happened in 325 in Nicaea in modern Turkey. So just 12 years uh, after the legalization of Christianity, all of these bishops and early church leaders are gathering together to kind of write some of these these basic uh, doctrines down in the form of a creed. And it's it's really uh, crazy when you think about that, that in just the span of 12 years, you go from Christianity being an outlaw religion where the, the Roman government had literally been throwing Christians into you know, places like the Colosseum to fight off uh, and die at the hands of wild beasts to that same government is helping them form and host this first church council. And the emperor himself uh, is even sponsoring it and present. So, so needless to say, that, that moment was a time of celebration and huge joy for the early Christians. Uh, there, there was a historian uh, at that council, uh, the Council of Nicaea. His name was Eusebius. And as he was documenting uh, what was going on and kind of this, this celebration of these early Christians uh, after the, the legalization of Christianity, uh, he documented and he described the appearance of the bishops that gathered there at the council. Uh, and he, he described them in a very interesting way. He said that all that gathered there looked like an assembled army of martyrs, 
which is kind of a, a weird but interesting way to describe them. Uh, and again, you have to remember that, that just 12 years ago, it was those same men who had experienced a, a terrifying array of atrocities at the hands of the Roman government. Uh, many of the men who were at the Council of Nicaea were missing fingers and limbs. Uh, some had had uh, their eyes gouged out. Uh, there, there was one bishop who was present there who had been poked so many times with the tip of a hot iron, he could no longer feel or even use his fingers or hands. And, and so I'm, I'm sure that if you looked at these bruised and, and beaten bishops, uh, they were a very sorry sight to see. And, and so on, on the one hand, if, if you just read that description that Eusebius wrote about them, uh, if all you saw was just kind of a picture of these men, it, it would be very easy for you to say that these are the least likely individuals to have any sense of joy in their life. Uh, you may expect them to be bitter or angry. Uh, you may even think that they would want to use this as an opportunity to take revenge on the emperor who is with them because it was uh, his previous life before he became a, a Christian and it was his government that had been persecuting these bishops in the first place. But... If you understand that fuller story, your opinion might change because it had been 300 years, for 300 years, you know, generations of Christians uh, who had been persecuted by Rome, uh, but yet they had persevered. I mean, these believers for, for generations had been uh, beheaded and crucified and burned alive, yet they had still been faithful, faithful to spread the flames of the gospel throughout Rome and beyond. And now those efforts ha have climaxed and culminated and you, you have this tipping point where the empire has literally been turned inside out so much so that even the emperor himself has become a Christ follower. And so when you, when you understand the story in that light, you, you would look at those bruised and beaten bishops with all of these scars uh, and physical deformities, and you would say that they had every reason for celebration. I mean, these men have every reason to be joyful because the gospel has won. The, the empire had been turned inside out. And, and I want us to I wanted us to reflect on on kind of that that celebration early on in church history. Uh, and and I want to wanted to bring that to your attention because that that story is a reminder that genuine joy, it's not just a destination. Uh, joy is not just about the end result. Uh, it, it's also about the journey that it takes to get there. The, the legalization of Christianity in Rome, I mean, that in and of itself was a cause for celebration, but it was a joy 
that was made all the sweeter by knowing the obstacles that the early church had to overcome to get there. And so the the early church, they they knew how to celebrate that journey of joy. Uh, And you're going to see in Psalm 16 that so did David. And and as we reflect on these verses, I I hope that that you will see the, the same should be true of you and I as well. Uh, So let me read for you Psalm 16. We're going to look at all 11 verses here, and we're going to talk about joy and David's journey to find it. So David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So so the main idea here that David is trying to communicate is really that genuine joy is only found in God. I mean, the the psalm is a reflection of David's life and his journey to find joy. Uh, And and David wants you to know that in every step of his journey, joy is found only in God and God alone. Uh, Eternally, joy is a future hope. That will be David's final destination when he'll come to dwell in the presence of God. But but even now, joy isn't just a future hope off in the distance. It's also a present reality. For, For those who have committed themselves to the Lord... David is arguing that that you will not only experience eternal joy in the life to come, but but you should also expect to experience at least a glimmer of that joy in this life now. So let's, let's begin by looking at joy as a future hope. Uh, you'll, you see that in verses 10 and 11. We'll start at the end of the psalm, and we'll, we'll see the, the future hope that, that David describes. And then in light of that, we'll loop back to verses 1 through 9, so you can better appreciate the present reality of joy that is available to you and I now in this life. 
that let me let me read verses 10 and 11 again for you. David writes that for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David says that the Lord will not abandon his soul to Sheol. If you're not familiar with that term, Sheol is just kind of an all-encompassing Hebrew word for uh, the afterlife. David is saying that, that God won't just provide for his needs now, only to dump or discard him once he's dead. Uh, rather, David says that the Lord will make known to him a path of life. Now, that, that's not to say that David's going to physically live for forever, but it is to say that the Lord has plans for David long into eternity long after his physical body has passed away. Now, now David is not provided with all of the details of this plan. He, he doesn't know exactly what this eternal life will entail. Uh, he doesn't know what, or rather who, is seated at the right hand of God. But he understands enough to know that only there will he find both a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And even though David never came to fully understand this future, uh, the hope of future joy in his own lifetime, you and I have cause to rejoice this morning because this truth has been fully revealed to us. The Lord has unmasked this mystery 2,000 years ago in the life of Christ. From your vantage point in the unfolding narrative of history, uh, you are privileged to see that hope of future joy that David was longing for in this psalm. Uh, let me read to you quickly from Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start at the, the end of verse 1, and you can see better what, what I'm talking about. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God that David is, is talking about in the psalm? It, it's Jesus. He is the fullness of joy that David spoke of. Jesus is pleasure forevermore. Uh, even though David didn't know it, David's journey, and, and therefore your journey to find joy, is a journey to find Jesus. So, so before you can even think about having happiness in this life now, 
But before you can try to find any satisfaction in your life here on earth, you, you first have to understand joy as a future hope that rests in Christ alone. And you, you must be motivated by that joy because Jesus himself was motivated by that joy. The author of Hebrews says that it was the joy set before Jesus that allowed him to endure even the cross. Now, now you might not think that there would be much joy to be had there being nailed to a cross, to a Roman torture device, uh, and dying a horrific and humiliating death. But even in the darkest hour of human history, there was joy to be found. It was the joy in the hope of seeing that relationship between God and man finally restored. It was that hope of joy that drove Jesus to do what he did and gave him the ability to endure even death. And now that death has been defeated and Jesus has conquered the grave, that same joy is available to you and I. And if it was strong enough to sustain Jesus through some of the most terrible torture imaginable, then surely it is strong enough to sustain you through whatever affliction or frustrations you are facing today. So, so that's where the conversation must start, by, by seeing joy as a future hope that is found in Christ. Now, in light of that future hope, let's, let's see joy as a present reality as well. That's where we're going to kind of camp out and spend uh, the rest of our time this morning. I want, I want to show you how that future hope of finding joy in Jesus affects you and your life now on earth, um, especially uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, as, you, as you look through this psalm, uh, as you kind of scan it and you, you reflect on David's life, uh, it's clear that David's life, even though you know it had its ups and downs, it, it wasn't just this um, perpetual roller coaster of emotional negativity. You know, it, it, David's life uh, was not just a life filled only with sorrow and doubt and despair. I mean, David reflects. Uh, on his life in these verses, and, and he's able to make statements in this psalm like, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and my heart is glad, and, and my whole being rejoices. It's clear that, that David sees hope not just in the life to come, but also in his life in the here and now. He's saying that, that there is joy that can be had today, even in a fallen, broken, sinful world. So, so what does that joy look like? That, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How, how does that 
journey to find genuine Christian joy, how does that differ from the pursuit of the fleeting pleasures offered by this world? I think this psalm offers uh, four characteristics that, that should mark the presence of genuine, Christ-honoring, uh, godly joy. So, so let's go back to, to verses 1 and 2. Let's see the, the first characteristic. Uh, genuine joy will always attribute God as the author of good. Joy will, will attribute God as the author of good. Let me read those first two verses again for you. Uh, David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Uh, in those opening two verses, uh, David begins by saying that there is no good to be had. Uh, that there is no pleasure that will last outside of the Lord himself. He argues that, that anything that is good in his life can and must be attributed to God. I mean, that, that's why David takes refuge in the Lord in the first place, because he is the source of all that is good and therefore all that will bring him joy. I, I would argue that our society has no real concept of genuine joy. I mean, our, our culture just assumes joy really just to be kind of this uh, emotional response to the experience of pleasure. That, that's really all it is. It's just kind of a, an emotional response to the experience of pleasure. But, but genuine Christian joy knows that that definition from our society doesn't suffice. Ha having genuine joy is understanding, like David understood, that the greatest pleasure that exists is to experience God. That, that's joy. Genuine joy is experiencing God and understanding that, that he is the author of all that is good and all that will give you joy. And any true or lasting joy then, as opposed to, to fleeting temporal pursuits of pleasure, it, it must come as a result of having glimpsed the glory of God and seeing him as that sole author of all that is good and all that can bring you joy in your life. I mean, I, I think it's safe to assume that all humans want to be happy. If you're a human, you have been hardwired by God to want to have joy. God has designed you to desire desire. And to, you know, every decision that you make, uh, it's either because you think it'll give you a, a greater sense of satisfaction uh, or at the very least will remove obstacles keeping you from finding that satisfaction. And, and it's good for, for you to want to be happy, uh, for you to want to have that joy in your life. That's how God made you. 
But, but as you seek that satisfaction, if any of your pursuits don't stem from the Lord or draw you closer to the Lord, then, then let me suggest to you that you are not, in fact, on a journey to find joy. You're, you're really only chasing a counterfeit. I mean, that, that's all sin really is, is just counterfeit joy. Sin, sin is that momentary pleasure that masquerades itself as lasting joy. It, it just exaggerates the experiences that it promises. But at the end, it, it really just serves to, to deaden your soul with discontentment. Uh, it, it just dulls your ability to delight in that genuine joy that can only be found in the Lord. God is the sole author of good, and therefore he is the sole author of all that will bring you joy. So, so that's, that's the first characteristic. Genuine joy attributes God as the author of good. Uh, the second characteristic, it's found there in verses 3 and 4. Uh, true, genuine joy acts as a weapon that can wage war. I, I know that, that we don't often think of joy as a, a weapon, uh, but, but it is. Genuine joy, when wielded right, can, can wage war against any of the remaining wickedness that is in your heart. Uh, look, look here at verses 3 and 4. Uh, David says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So, so David describes two groups of people in those verses. There are the saints in the land who worship the Lord and in whom is delight. And then there are those who run after other gods. And David says of that latter group that their sorrows will just multiply and that their names really aren't even worth using his lips to speak of. So, so the, the question is, you look at those two verses then becomes, how, how do you remain a saint who is satisfied with his Savior rather than becoming like that wandering soul whose sorrows will just be multiplied? And one answer to that question is joy. We've already noted that David concludes the psalm by writing, in the Lord's presence there is a fullness of joy. There are pleasures forevermore. Uh, and part of, of what David is saying there is it's difficult to be distracted by counterfeit pleasures, counterfeit joys in this world, when you are so infatuated with the fullness of joy that you experience in the presence of the Lord. So, so if you feel like all of the struggles in your life uh, have only multiplied 
and it seems increasingly difficult for you to battle that sin that is in your life, let me ask you, how is your joy? And could it be that many of your continued struggles are, are merely the result of not being intoxicated and infatuated with the Lord? I mean, could, could it be that you have forgotten what it feels like to be so head over heels, passionately in love with, the, with Christ, that that idea of pursuing any other momentary counterfeit pleasure just isn't, isn't even on your radar. It, it just seems unfathomable. I, I, I think the, the problem that many Christians have today is that they go to extraordinary efforts to wage ineffective wars against sin. Uh, and maybe, maybe that's some of you this morning. Maybe there are some of you who just through sheer willpower uh, have, have tried as, as hard as you can not to think those thoughts that you know you shouldn't think. Or maybe you've enlisted the help of elaborate systems of people or technology to prevent you from going astray. Uh, you, you dive into to every uh, book on various subjects. You, you get all of the advice that you can from prominent um, authors and pastors and scholars. But no matter what books you've read, what counsel you've sought, no matter what kind of tactics you've tried... That particular uh, habit, those thoughts, that, that ever-present sin in your life, um, it, it just doesn't seem to, to go away. Everything that, that you've done, all of your efforts just seem ineffective. But, but in the, the midst of those struggles, let me ask you again, where is your joy? Where are you in regards to your delight in the Lord? I mean, do you wake up yearning to read his word? Do you look forward to spending time and communing with the Lord in prayer? Do you wait in anticipation of Sunday mornings where you can gather collectively together and express your joy in the Lord by singing with other believers? Genuine joy will so consume your desires for the Lord that it will act as one of the greatest weapons in your arsenal to wage war against any of that remaining wickedness in your heart. You will become so infatuated with the Lord that chasing after counterfeit joys and counterfeit pleasures, it just seems unthinkable. So genuine joy, as I said, number one, uh, attributes God as the author of all that's good. Number two, it's a weapon that can wage war. Then number three, Christian joy, joy that is genuine is this. Uh, it is a choice that you can choose regardless of circumstance. It is always an option for you. It is always a choice that you can choose regardless of your circumstances. Look at verses 5 and 6. 
David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Uh, I Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David says there that the Lord is his chosen pleasure or chosen portion. He, he has made a conscious decision to choose the Lord regardless of the circumstances in his life. Even as others are, are running after other gods, David has chosen the Lord. And he does so because David realizes that the lines of his life have fallen on pleasant places. And in the Lord, there is a beautiful inheritance. There are many people in our society who see joy merely as a coincidental side effect to favorable circumstances. I mean, joy to many people in our society, it's kind of like winning the lottery, It's one of those things that it would be nice that if it ever happened to you, uh, but it's not something that is in your control to bring it about. Uh, To experience that kind of temperamental joy or temperamental pleasure, uh, it it seems like all the stars just have to align. Uh, You have to be well-rested. If you have kids, your your kids have to be well-rested. You have to be in the right mood. Everybody around you has to be uh, in the right mood. It has to have the right attitude. Uh, the weather outside, it can't be too hot. It can't be too cold. Uh, work for you can't be too difficult. And then if, if everything aligns just perfectly in your life, then, and it, you know, it all happens on that same day, that, then maybe, just maybe you can have a sense of happiness, at least for a moment. That That's how joy appears to a lot of people in our society. But that attitude is completely antithetical to how the Bible describes experiencing joy. But because of the hope of the gospel that that, that you have, the hope that you have in Christ, joy is always within your grasp. You can always choose joy regardless of your circumstances. I mean, it doesn't mean that you'll always be able to control your emotions. Doesn't mean that there won't still be times of tears in your life. But it does mean in the midst of experiencing those turbulent feelings that that seem beyond your control, regardless of your uh, circumstances, there, there is always satisfaction that you can have in your Savior. And not only do you have the ability to choose joy, let me suggest to you that the gospel should compel you to choose that joy. Uh, in the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, he, he said that one of the, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. joy. Joy is that supernatural byproduct that is produced by having an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's the, the realization that because of Christ's death 
his burial, his resurrection, uh, life may not always be fair, but, but it's actually unfair in your favor. It's not fair, but it's unfair in your favor. Because when all is tallied up, when you compare all the afflictions that you face to what Christ went through on your behalf, uh, when you compare all of those, that you realize not only can you choose joy, you realize nothing could stop you from choosing that joy. It doesn't matter what dire circumstances that you are facing now compared to that eternity that you will spend with Christ. You, you can celebrate and you can find cause to find joy now because you understand that the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places and you have a beautiful inheritance in the Lord. So, Genuine joy, it always attributes God as the author. Uh, it's a weapon, as I've said, that can wage war against wickedness. Uh, it's also a choice regardless of circumstances. And then lastly, let's uh, look back at the, the remainder of these verses and see the fourth characteristic that joy, when you look at it, it's really just the increasing awareness of what already is. While counterfeit joy will, will urge you to leave what you have in order to seek satisfaction somewhere else, genuine godly joy invites you to see the surplus that is already present in your life now. Uh, I want to go back to read verse 6 again, and then let me read from verse 6 to, to verse 9. It says that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So, so while those around David are running after other gods to seek satisfaction, David understands that that he needn't run anywhere else because he is already surrounded by this all-encompassing joy that is found in the presence of the Lord. He doesn't need to go somewhere else because he is already surrounded by joy in the Lord. I mean, just look at the, the language that David uses here. He says that the Lord is, is with him uh, to give him counsel. Uh, the Lord is, is with him in the night to instruct his heart. Uh, the Lord is always at his right hand, always before him. I mean, David describes the Lord uh, almost like, so, like someone describing the air that you breathe. You, you are just in completely encompassed by it. I mean, there's almost nowhere that, that you would go that you wouldn't encounter it. And to experience it, all you have to do is, is just open your mouth and let it in. 
And, and notice that, that David's response uh, to, to that reality, that he's just surrounded and encompassed by the joy that, that comes in, in the presence of the Lord. But be, because of that presence, David says that he dwells securely and he will not be shaken. And not only is his heart glad, but in fact, his whole being rejoices. I, I, I suspect that some of you in this room don't feel like David felt in this psalm. I, I suspect that there are some of you who, who feel like you are always, almost about to find joy. You're, you're always almost there, but, but you don't quite have it, especially as we are in the, the busyness of the, the Christmas season and, and the holidays. Uh, you, you feel like you're not there just yet, but, but maybe you're just one purchase away, one experience or, or lucky break away from finally finding that joy that you've been searching for. Uh, but, but, but you're not there yet. But, but let me remind you that that search to find satisfaction and joy that lasts is really just an increasing awareness of what there already is. It's just understanding that the Lord and the joy that comes with his presence has been standing in front of you all along, even if you're not aware of it, even if you don't always see it. Uh, they're, they're really, when you boil it down, there's just two views in the world regarding your search for joy. Our, our society often sees it as a scarce commodity. Uh, it's in very, very short supply. Uh, it's like finding that, that only glass of ice water uh, sitting on a desert or sitting on a boulder somewhere out in the middle of the desert. You know, it's very difficult to find, and if and when you do find it, you have to selfishly keep it to yourself because there's not enough of it to go around. But, but David understood, and if you're a follower of Christ, then you should understand that joy is not a scarce commodity. It is in endless supply. That there is a surplus of joy to be had seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where there are pleasures forevermore. And so if you ever lack joy as a Christian, it's not because it doesn't exist in your life. It's only because you're not aware of its presence. So, so for those who have committed their life to Christ, joy, we've seen this morning, is both a future hope and a present reality. Uh, it, it's a destination, but it's also a journey in and of itself. Uh, the early church, as I started out with, understood that well when, when they saw the gospel transform the Roman Empire from the inside out. Uh, their, their celebration of how God worked during that time uh, was made all the more sweet by know, knowing how the Lord had helped preserve that church through 300 years of trials and tribulations, which kind of led up to that climax in history. And so as, as you prepare 
to celebrate Christmas in the you know the coming days, uh, I urge you to remember that truth that both the early church and David understood so well. Uh, as you gather with friends and family to reflect on the arrival of God's arrival uh, on earth, God as, as incarnate as he, as he came uh, to that manger, may you remember that future hope that is only found in Christ. But may you also remember in the light of that gospel that, that you can not only find a future hope of joy, but you can also see it as a present reality. For followers of Christ, there is a brighter future in the life to come, but there is still a glimmer of that hope to be had even today. Let me pray for us.